Hey everybody, welcome back to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt, the author of the fantasy novel, Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, which I will read in its entirety, one or two chapters per episode on this podcast. Now this episode will cover chapters eight and nine, and if you didn't already hear the earlier chapters, make sure to go back and listen to those first. I'll be here waiting for you when you're ready. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends, leave positive reviews wherever you listen to podcasts, and share about it on social media. And I also hope that you will want to purchase the ebook, the paperback, or the hardcover if you're enjoying the story. At the time of recording this, the book is available in Kindle Unlimited. The ebook is also available on Amazon, and the paperback and hardcover editions can be purchased anywhere books are sold online. You can also get signed copies of the books from my website, ryanhoytauthor.com, R-Y-A-N-H-O-Y-T-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. And those signed books will include a postcard map from the book. I have a prequel novella also available called The Witch of Farathon. And there's a sequel novel called The Isle of Abandonment that is being written right now by me. And I hope to release it in the summer of 2023. I have an unrelated gothic horror novel also called Raven Tree Hollow. And it's available on Kindle Unlimited, Kindle ebook, paperback from any online bookstores or signed copies from my website. Now let's get into the episode. This is chapters eight and nine of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair. This is the turning point for our journeys as uh, each group of our main characters make their final decision to go off on the journey that will define the story. Keep in mind that I'm narrating the book for the podcast, but this isn't as clean as a professional paid audiobook. You'll probably hear some awkward pauses, some little mistakes here and there, and of course my dog's stomach making all kinds of funny noises as I'm talking. Uh, and that said, I hope you'll enjoy the story. Stay tuned after the chapters for a behind the scenes look at the story. And thank you for listening. Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, Book One of the Epistel Chronicles by Ryan Hoyt. Chapter Eight. If there hadn't been fallen tree branches still gracing the pathway leading up to Richard's front door, leaves lining the porch, and gardening tools scattered all across the yard, Gemma would have sworn she'd been dreaming just an hour earlier. The wind had reached its climax during their conversation about the prophecies in Richard's library, and then it had quieted almost as quickly as it had begun. When that happened, Richard didn't seem to be as open to incriminating himself with talk of an impending apocalypse. As drawn in as Gemma had been, the fresh air was like a splash of cold water, waking her from the trance of Richard's story. Reality sank in as she looked around at the calm blue sky and listened to the birds chirp. She had never witnessed any magic while growing up in post-war capital city that couldn't be explained by sleight of hand or hypnotic trickery. She didn't feel that Richard was a danger to her in any physical way. Sure, he was large and imposing, but he didn't give her any creepy vibes, though she could see he had trouble maintaining a single emotional state for long. In that way, he really did remind her of her father, whose mind had rapidly deteriorated while Gemma was still just a child. But she knew how to handle her father, and she was quite certain she could handle Richard. As she walked across his yard toward the road, Observing the damage that the freak storm had caused, she heard Richard calling from the porch. Are you leaving? he inquired. No, sorry, 
Gemma said as she turned back toward the house. I'm just trying to understand what happened here. I've never heard of anything like it. By the way, I have something for you. Gemma jogged into the house and reemerged seconds later with the scroll in her hand. She pulled the letter free of the ribbon and handed both to Richard. He looked at her with apprehension. I think it's from Mr. Abernath at the Royal Library of Epistel, Gemma said. She took a step back as Richard read the letter. A look of wonder filled his face as he folded up the letter and unrolled the scroll. Gemma stepped to Richard's side to get a look, but she couldn't decipher the strange flowing figures on the page. I have something else to show you, Richard said a minute later as he rolled up the scroll. He pulled the door shut behind him, stepped off the porch, and motioned for Gemma to follow him as he headed around to the back of the house. On the other side, the hill continued to rise for a few hundred feet. They walked past rows of crops on which Richard toiled away daily, with several flat, terraced sections that he must have cut into the hillside over the years. She wondered what this hike up the hill was all about. And then she spotted it. As they reached the peak, she could see what lay beyond to the north. Do you remember how I described the boat that those foreign beings sailed in on? Richard asked. You said it was made of a black wood that doesn't grow in Epistel, Gemma began, then paused as she squinted at what lay before them. If that's true, what are we looking at? As you can see, a forest black as night, Richard replied. But I thought there was no forest here anymore, Gemma said. I mean, it's literally called the Decimated Forest, and that's why nobody will come this far north of the River of Giants. When I mentioned that the boat was made from a wood that didn't grow on our continent, I should have been more specific, Richard said, taking steps down the other side of the hill toward the abomination below them. It never grew here until just 15 years ago. It... Impossible, Gemma interrupted. I mean, look at it. It's as thick and overgrown as any forest that's been growing for centuries. Down the north face of the hill that sloped toward the forest, Richard's terraced fields continued, with berries growing aplenty at the peak of their season. But Gemma noticed that Richard had abandoned the lower tiers. During the height of what you call the Great Journey, when the six kingdoms south of the River of Giants finally organized an army to send north to fight alongside us, this entire forest was destroyed, Richard explained. The Flash, some people call it. Gemma said. One of the sides set fire to it, either by accident or as a tactic of war. She knew the forest fire explanation was the official one, even though it wasn't what her father sometimes whispered in the rare moments when he let down his guard. Set fire? Not quite, Richard said. It was the work of some kind of dark evil magic. Several battalions of soldiers, thousands of men, and even some of the ancient ones who were sent to meet them and serve as guides. We're heading north from here toward Emerson. They were supposed to join us while we were camped at the Ancient One's castle. Richard trailed off with a faraway look in his eyes, gazing over the black forest in front of them. Then he seemed to snap out of his nostalgic trance and continued his story. We were going to make our way farther north, beyond King Harold's kingdom, when the soldiers got there. They were to protect us from the foreign ones who didn't want us to pass through those lands. But most of the soldiers never arrived. Tears formed at the edges of Richard's eyes, but he didn't seem ashamed enough to look away or hide them. As they trekked through the forest that was here, thousands of square miles of it, the whole thing disappeared in a flash of brilliant light. There wasn't even a fire to put out.
all that life, all those trees, it was all just gone, replaced by charred remains. We were cut off from any assistance from the kingdoms after that, Richard said as they neared the border between his farm and the regrown forest ahead. A single company of soldiers had made it through the forest already, and they found their way to us at the Ancient One's castle. My father was part of that company, Gemma said. Richard seemed not to hear her as he continued his story. But there was nobody else to send. Nobody would dare walk through the wasteland that remained. The only other way to get to us was by crossing through the mountains in the east, or by boat, sailing across the current of the Amasa River. But this is all impossible, Gemma said. She knew from her father's stories, when they were coherent enough to follow, that his company had set out from Capital City, camped much farther west of Pine Drop, and then crossed north through the forest ahead of the rest of the army. They had made it to a peak overlooking the Castle of the Ancient Ones, when, as her father described it, rays of sunshine blasted not from the sky, but from the floor of the forest that surrounded the mountains on three sides. The mountains they were trekking through were safe, as was the valley that held the castle below them, as if there were a large hedge of protection surrounding all of it. But Gemma had never believed magic had caused it all to combust in the blink of an eye. Rather, she bought into the theory that the armies must have lit their campfires in unison throughout the forest, which then ignited the natural gases that were known to seep through the forest floors. It was a well-documented period of drought, so the trees would have practically been dry kindling. Impossible, she repeated again. Impossible? Richard asked, this time sounding personally offended. Impossible in a world governed by the laws of nature, perhaps. In the world that King Davin and his royal mystic committee would have you believe you are living in. But here we are. He waved his hand toward the forest. These trees popped up and grew in a matter of months, Richard said. You can see it for yourself. You can touch the bark. Touch it? Gemma asked. You mean you've gone in there? Not too far, but yes, Richard said. They stood in silence, looking out at the strange trees beyond Richard's farm. Gemma was surprised to feel herself shuddering in fear. She wasn't superstitious didn't believe in magic to back up that fear. If these really were the same trees the mysterious travelers had used to build their boats, those travelers could have also brought seeds with them, intentionally or unintentionally. And maybe something in the soil or weather of northern Epistel had caused the trees to grow as rapidly as weeds. She had heard of stranger things. This scroll, Richard said, tapping the roll of parchment Gemma had delivered to him, is a very old piece of the Illuminarion. The sacred text of the Order of Selenderon, Gemma interrupted. Yes, I know their book front to back, but this isn't a part of any translation I've gotten my hands on. One of the many prophecies that were left out over the centuries, I figure. It mentions a dark forest that rises up out of the ashes in the years before the fall of Epistel. And you believe this? Gemma asked. It lines up with everything I've been studying, but I'm still missing pieces of the puzzle. I do intend to go deeper into the woods. The village of Farathon still stood the last time I was near the Amasa River, 25 years ago. There was a cache of books my father wasn't able to smuggle out of the north, books he held onto longer than the rest, so he hid them away in Farathon. I believe 
These were the final books my father studied, along with the last journals he wrote before he was forced to permanently suppress his thoughts. They may confirm my suspicions, Richard continued. I believe that a new evil is rising up north in Emerson, one that will come south to Epistel. The brute strength of man alone will not be enough to stop it, but the banished elements of ancient magic might be. If Abernath risked everything to get this scroll to me, he must understand the urgency. I believe that time is running out for Epistel. Richard stopped and looked at Gemma. She thought he was searching for one last sign that she had no intention of betraying him to the Royal Mystic Committee. He must not have seen any hint of devious intent in her because he turned back to face the forest and looked into the distance to the great mysteries hidden beyond. Gemma also shifted her gaze back to the land once known as the Forest of Despair. The impossibility of what had happened in that forest perplexed her more than ever before. She thought back to her childhood, when she had witnessed the progressive decay of her father's mind, the way the liveliness in his eyes had faded away, the complete absence of awareness, of love, of presence that had replaced the man who had brought her into this world. Somewhere out there, Gemma thought, the story of my father's downfall played out. But that story doesn't have to be over. If magic truly caused the destruction and the decay, perhaps there's also magic that could bring back the life that was taken from him. Gemma contemplated going back home. It wouldn't be hard to tell Hannon that Richard was already gone by the time she arrived at his home to interview him. She was certain that Walker wouldn't dispute her story, as long as he hadn't already sent a report back saying otherwise. What would she be going back to, though? Being trapped at home to take care of her father? Hiding away from friendships? From love? From life? That didn't seem like a life worth living. I'm coming with you, Gemma said. You can use the time we spend walking, telling me more of your story for my assignment. I think being there in the middle of where you went on your journey will help me really understand it all. And perhaps it will help me understand my father if I can follow the steps he took before it all went wrong for him, she thought. Richard started to argue, but then he stopped and thought about it. I could use some company, I suppose. I tried for years to get my old friends to come with me. They didn't so much as write me back. We'll get you those books, Gemma said. An unexpected confidence washed over her. It was something she had never felt before, but she liked it. And so, a new journey to save the people of Epistel was set into motion. Chapter 9 About a third of the way through the journey back to Plentimore Valley, the train conductor had called out the next stop would be Pine Drop Station. Arnhem could have opted to cut short the journey home and gotten off the train there with Denny. They could have hiked out to Richard's home to check on Arnhem's old friend. But when Denny had looked at Arnhem, he could tell that the man was pretending not to have heard the conductor. Instead, Arnhem seemed to be trying his best to convince himself that there wasn't any truth to this business of dreams and troubles that Denny had warned of. He caught Arnhem's disdainful looks at his book. He's wondering how much of this was all just a child's imagination, and how much was caused by Jess Stan's book, Denny thought. It's clear from its condition that I've been reading it a lot. He probably thinks it's gotten to my head. 
Maybe he doesn't believe in my visions at all. And now, before there was time to have another meal in the dining car, they arrived at Plentimore Station. I hope Sailor prepared a large breakfast this morning, Arnhem said. You ate about three times as much as I did on this trip. Where all that food fits in in such a twig of a boy, I couldn't say. Though I was in quite good shape at the end of the great journey. You wouldn't know it by the look of me now. Denny noticed Arnhem looking down at his own paunch with disappointment. They locked eyes and laughed. Denny felt more at ease again. A relatively small crowd stood up to exit at Plentimore Valley as the train came to a halt. It wasn't the biggest vacation destination, but some travelers visited the local wineries in the valley, and others would head west to the coast, just a half-day's ride by carriage. Most passengers on the train were likely traveling to Capital City or farther toward the southern reaches. Arnhem and Denny had no bags. Arnhem's one light travel bag was on the cargo train he was supposed to have taken home. So they were the first two people off of the train. Arnhem's first point of business would be to stop by the cargo office in hopes that the conductor had dropped off his bag. The platform was fairly empty compared to the bustling Esteron station Denny called home. Denny looked around in surprise. He observed a young woman only a few years older than himself carrying a baby in one arm and a sign that said, Welcome home, Francis, in the other hand. There was an elderly couple embracing. A group of children ran too close to the train while their mother yelled at them to stand back, lest they get run over. What caught Denny's eye, though, was a tall, mustachioed fellow, dressed in a fine suit that Denny wouldn't have expected on a resident of a farm town like this. The man's head was shaved, completely bald. He was holding a newspaper, the Capital City Courier, but Denny couldn't help feeling like he was looking over the paper in the direction of Denny and Arnhem. Denny shook the thought from his mind as Arnhem led him past the main station building toward a warehouse that served as the cargo railway's distribution center. They walked inside the office, a dusty room with desks covered in shipping records, forms, and schedules. A bulky woman with spectacles greeted Arnhem with an annoyed glance and a grunt. She shifted her eyes to Denny, and her expression somehow got even more annoyed. Did you drag home a stowaway this time, Arno? She asked. This is my friend Denny, Arnhem said. Listen, do you have my bag from the line that returned late last night? I missed the departure and had to catch the passenger line. The grouchy clerk rolled her eyes, let out another grunt, and said in her husky voice, Let me check. She got up and walked at a snail's pace through a doorway into a rear room. Denny turned to look around. Outside the window, facing the platform, he saw the mustachioed man again, this time leaning against the wall of a ticketing stall, newspaper still in hand, eyes still glancing over the words and toward the cargo office in which they stood. Denny turned to Arnhem, but he apparently didn't share the feeling that they were being watched. Denny thought Arnhem was probably trying to formulate an excuse for why he was bringing a homeless teenager back to the family. Ah, you're a true angel, Berna, Arnhem called as the clerk waddled back out. She was holding a leather bag that looked like it would hold one day's worth of clothing. Thank you. I promise it won't happen again. After another grunt and what may have been the slightest hint of a smile from Berna, Denny followed Arnhem back out the door. Arnhem didn't seem to notice the man watching them as they walked in front of him, and Denny tried his best to avoid eye contact. Wasn't the first time I left my belongings on one of those trains. I mean, it's bound to happen when you travel as much as... Arnhem rambled on, but Denny was distracted. 
He knew that they had passed right through Pine Drop, even though Arnhem hadn't said a word about it. Why had Arnhem bothered to bring him home if he didn't believe what Denny had said about the prophetic dream? Justan's book described Arnhem as a loyal friend with a heart of gold. That generous heart was surely the reason why he was helping Denny put a roof over his head. But what about the loyal friend part? And why were they being watched at the train station? Sishev, Nifelen. The strange words ran through the boy's mind, but he still didn't know what they meant. Soren, Alzar. You can't just bring home strays, Arnhem. Denny sat in the dining room of the Winstone family home, chewing on his third sandwich of the afternoon. He was between Arnhem's two daughters, who watched him in silence. In the other room, he could hear Mrs. Winstone's patient but perplexed voice as she spoke with her husband about him. If Richard really is in trouble, I have to know. I can't just ignore that without finding out, Arnhem said. But he's talking about visions in his dreams, Arn, Sella said. You know that damage that could be done to our family if someone reports it to the committee. It'll be okay, Arnhem replied. Besides, you know I've always wanted more help with this business. He'll fit right in. He's a good kid, Selah. Selah seemed to resign from the argument for now as Arnhem walked back out and beckoned for Denny to follow. He led him to the front door. Denny turned back to see Selah watching from behind the table, where she flashed him a concerned and motherly smile. He felt a bit of comfort in that moment of the type he hadn't experienced since his parents had vanished all those years ago. Arnhem led Denny past two large barns that served as warehouses for the farming supplies he distributed, and then they arrived at a smaller building that was used as an office. Arnhem motioned for Denny to sit in a chair. Arnhem plopped down behind a desk, his usual place for doing business. I'm sorry to cause problems with your family, sir, Denny said. Arnhem looked shocked at first, then let out a fatherly laugh. No need for apologies, Denny, Arnhem said. Sailor will warm up to you very quickly, I'm sure. Besides, those girls of mine can use someone new to pick on around here. I don't plan to stay, though, Denny said. What I told you before, it wasn't made up. I need to help Richard, and I'd prefer to have your help, but I can do it myself if I need to. Denny, Arnhem began, then paused while he tried to frame his thoughts. Look, I get why you might feel a connection to my friends and to me. Justan is a very gifted writer, and he made the journey sound like such a fun adventure in spite of the great dangers we faced every step of the way. But what happened in the past is in the past. This is a new world. One without magic, without danger. A world my daughters have a chance to grow up in without sorcery threatening their well-being. There are consequences for practicing or promoting magic and prophecy in this new world. If Richard has been toying around with all of that, maybe he really is in danger. But he brought it upon himself. You don't owe him anything. But you can't believe that, can you? You have to listen to me. This is very real. Denny had tears in his eyes as he tried to explain this to the one man who had afforded him dignity in all the years he had been alone, living on the streets of Esteron. I know there's danger in all this prophetic business. My parents are dead or rotting away in a cell because of it. But they never chose to have these gifts. I never chose it, and I can't ignore the call. Maybe you and Richard are my heroes because I'm just a stupid kid reading stupid fairy tales. But maybe, maybe we really are connected through some mystical powers. I... Arnhem didn't seem to know where to go with this. Denny had full faith in his visions, but he needed Arnhem to believe in them as well. He knew how much Arnhem had witnessed on his journey. 
not just the destruction, but the creatures they had fought, the things he couldn't explain, the devastating disappearance of those soldiers in the woods. Pure evil, born at the beginning of time, and a corruptive evil holding power over those who had once been good. It was still out there, despite King Davin's best efforts to drive it back underground. Denny saw a change come over the man's face as he sighed. I need to write a letter for Sela and the girls, Arnim said at last. If I look at my girls in the eyes or feel my wife's embrace, I may not be able to leave them. So I'll write a letter instead. Sela will find it here on my desk tonight when I don't return for supper. Denny wanted to feel relief, but he couldn't help feeling something else instead. It was what he had felt when they'd gotten off the train that morning, when he had seen that man with the newspaper, the man who was so much taller than Arnhem or the other locals. He shrugged it off as Arnhem wrote a letter of apology to Selah and their daughters. Denny's mind turned toward the girl he had been seeing in his visions more recently. She was older than Arnhem's daughters. He didn't think Richard had a daughter of his own. He wondered how she had come to be with Richard. He wondered why Richard trusted her. He wondered how Richard hadn't seen the trap that must have been set just for him. He wondered if they would be too late to save Richard the Elusive. All right. I hope you enjoyed the eighth and ninth chapters of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair. My goal with the chapter eight, besides telling you about this great tragedy that occurred when the entire Forest of Despair was destroyed in the blink of an eye and the killing of thousands of soldiers along with it, was to show you how Gemma doubts the existence of the supernatural world. She and all the children of her generation grew up in a time where any talk of magic and religion was banished. So they've all been brainwashed to not even believe in its existence at all. Gemma is the skeptic here, and so it's quite a leap of faith when she decides to join Richard on his very illegal quest to further his knowledge about the religious prophecies. His intention is to save the world, and Gemma's intention going off here is to learn more about her father's past and why the war had such a harsh impact on his mind. And of course, as she mentioned, she's also going to use the opportunity to interview him along the way for her, her own uh, her job. And then chapter nine, we got Arnhem and Denny, and we got them pretty much to the same point as Richard and Gemma here, deciding to actually go off on this journey. In this case, it's Arnhem that needs the convincing and not the younger one. Um, and I thought it was a pretty interesting dynamic shift between the two uh, pairs of characters here. And obviously they're going to meet up at some point, otherwise this wouldn't be a great book if they never met each other. And our next episode will also probably be two chapters in one, like this one. Uh, I think we'll check back in with Walker, Gemma's ex-boyfriend and the super spy for the Royal Mystic Committee. We'll also finally push our characters out of their comfort zone and toward the Forest of Despair. And then in the episode after that, we should get into our final pairing when Gemma's brother George meets the world famous Justan the Just, who we've already learned has embellished quite a bit about the great journey in his books. He's also a uh, traveling uh, theatrical performer, uh, performing versions of his stories to the world, at least the versions that are allowed to be told by King Davin and the Royal Mystic Committee, because they've tampered down on his tellings quite a bit. 
All right. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can buy the books anywhere uh, books are sold online, including signed copies at my website, ryanhoytauthor.com, or you can read it on Kindle Unlimited. The music of this podcast is from Before the World Moved On, which is a music side project of mine from a few years ago. The track at the beginning is called The Warble, and the one after that is called The Gunslinger. You can find the music at soundcloud.com slash before the world moved on. All one word with no spaces or underscores. Thank you for listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. I'll talk to you again next time.